Well, welcome to the uh, first of a short preaching series I've entitled Unpopular. Um, and for the next few weeks, we're going to look at where and how culture intersects Christianity and how uh, there should be tension between the two of those, how when we think about how we live our life and, and how we respond to the pushback and how we can love our neighbor as ourselves when we really approach things from two different vantage points of life and belief and, and action. How, how do we deal with being unpopular? And I'll give you the easy answer right now, and I think it's, uh, it's pretty self-explanatory, but if, if you are a Christ follower, and, and notice I didn't say Christian, because there's a difference between somebody who is a Christian and someone who's a Christ follower follower, someone who believes all the right things, but someone who is taking up their cross daily, denying themselves and following Jesus. I hope we all understand the difference between those. If you are a Christ follower, then you should feel the tension of culture and create and Christianity in almost every area of your life. Your, your marriages should not look like everybody else's. Your parenting style should not look like everyone else's. What you stand for and what you believe and how, how you allow things or don't allow things in essence are unpopular if you are following after Jesus. Our theme verse for this entire series is on the front of your uh, bulletin. It should be on the screen. It says this, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. This is Jesus talking, right? He's saying, look, if you're really living for me, then people probably aren't going to like it. But you know what? They probably won't like you either. But they didn't like me either. So we're kind of in this together, right? This is an understanding that we are going to be unpopular. And some of us, I, I know that we struggle with this because I don't know how you grew up. I've, I've been here for a long time. Some of you I can look at and I know how you grew up because I watched you grow up. Some of you guys who are my age or maybe even older, I don't know if you were popular in high school or if you were unpopular in high school. I don't, I, I've got stories I could probably tell about, and I probably will at some point, about my transition from our little bitty town in Missouri to Bryant Junior High, where there were, there were 27 people in my graduating class in Missouri. And I went to a campus of 1,500 7th uh, and 8th graders. Um, it's like I went to college in the eighth grade. I can believe it or not. I was unpopular. Okay. I know that probably shocks most of you. Not really, but I, I, I didn't dress like everybody else. I didn't act like everybody else. My, my, my curls and my mullet was not cool. Like everybody else's. Now it is. See if I would have waited, uh, just another 30 years or so, I'd be cool again, but not, not back in the early nineties. Okay. So, uh, I don't know if you, if you were popular in high school or not. But no matter, no matter where you fall on that scale, there's something within us that doesn't want to be unpopular, right? There's something within us that doesn't want to be labeled as unpopular. Here's how I know that, because we allow things that we shouldn't. We allow our kids to be involved in things that we know that we shouldn't. We watch things and participate things and go along with things just so that we don't have to be that one person that stands up and says, yeah, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's enough. We're not going down this any further. Because as much as we justify it or make excuses for it or minimize our actions, it boils down to the fact that we just don't want to go against the grain. We don't want to be labeled as something and we don't want to, quote unquote, miss out 
So I'm telling you, if we claim to be Christ followers, then we should be prepared to be unpopular. But everything inside of us pushes back against that. How do we parent in a culture where popularity is allowing them to do things that we know they don't need to do? That's setting them up for things that they, can, they should never... I, I've told my kids, you're going to hate me. Like I told them when they were young, you're, gonna, you're not going to like me because I'm not going to let you do everything that everybody else does. Because I see, I've worked with students for long enough, I see the pitfalls. And I see the parents who allow things to happen and then when the kids hit 18, 19 years old and their whole world is falling apart, they come to me and go, how did this happen? And I said, you let all this happen when they were 13 years old? That's how it's happening now. You wanted them to be popular and not be solid in what we know is true. How do our marriages survive culture now? How do we, how do we interact with each other in a world full of distractions, things that want to pull us away from each other. How, how do we handle being businessmen and businesswomen in the culture that says it's okay to cheat? It's okay to do whatever you got to do to get by. There's this tension in every area of our life. So my thought is this. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to make a series of very hard but true unpopular statements. And then we're going to look at Scripture and how Scripture teaches us through those and really the truth of what God says about all of those. I've got three for us this morning. We're going to jump right into it. Before we get into that, just know that we're going to start pretty broad. Maybe even the first one you may want to say amen to, right? And then the closer we get to the end, the more and more it's going to hit a little closer to home. Um, and my, my last unpopular statement is just going to hurt. I'm just telling you from the beginning. So here's, here's the first one. Number one, salvation Forgiveness of sin and eternal life is only accomplished by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation, forgiveness of sin, and eternal life is only accomplished by grace, through faith, in Christ. Now, we, we hear that and we go, yeah, I mean, I, obviously, we all would agree with that. We, we know verses like this on the screen, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There's nothing that we do that deserves grace. There's nothing that we can do to earn faith. It's something that Jesus freely offers. It's by grace through faith in Christ that we are saved. And we all know this. We'd all say, yeah, that's a fundamental element of our faith. But we live in a world where this statement is questioned at every turn. And I'm not talking about I'm not talking about atheists or agnostics. An atheist says there is no God and an agnostic says there's no way to really know if there is or if there is not a God. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about, you know, on the same day, I've, I've told you guys this, the same day that Harbor City Church, our church plant in Boston that we've helped out, the same day they opened, the same day that uh, in Salem, Massachusetts, just two townships over, the Church of Satan opened. They have a cathedral and everything. They have a huge building. I'm not talking about that. All, all those things are real. All those things we have to be aware of. But I think this statement is challenged by the thought of universalism more than anything. Universalism says this, it doesn't matter what you believe, when we die, we all go to heaven. It doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what you believe, in the end, we all go to heaven. And can I just say this? 
That's not what the Bible teaches. It's just not. Matter of fact, Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Meaning that if you believe in God but don't believe in Jesus, then you don't go to heaven. Only way to the Father is through the Son. If you believe in a, a, in a, a creative God or a universal God or a Mother Earth or however you want to say it, in a higher power, but you don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, then you don't go to heaven when you die. See, the statement and the thought of universalism is that at the end, everybody wins. That God's a God of love, and how could a God of love send people to hell? So he doesn't. He just lets everybody in no matter what. Everybody gets an afterlife. Everybody gets to go to heaven when we die. And that's not what Scripture teaches. So this means, in broad strokes, Hinduism does not lead to God. Buddhism does not lead to God. Islam does not lead to God. Allah and Yahweh are two different gods. They're not the same thing. You know how I know that? Because Jesus points one direction and Muhammad points another. The only way to God is through Jesus. And so we can all sit back and go, yeah, we get that. No, no religion is the same. We can understand that. But here's where we need to be careful, church, and I think this is where it's going to hit a little closer to home. Even though we say we believe in God, and even though we say we worship God, we have to ensure that what we are worshiping is who God really is. Not some version of God that we've made up in our heads to make us feel better about ourselves. Here's what I mean. The Ten Commandments, you guys know this. Ten Commandments, clearly God delineates himself above all other things. The very first commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Right? We all know that. You shall have no other gods before me. Nothing else compares to me. In other words, I am unlike everything else. I am to be valued, worshipped, honored, held in a higher standard than all other things. And then just two verses down, he tells us the reason why. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. He says, don't worship anything other than me because I am a jealous God. He describes himself in terms of jealousy. Meaning not only does, does he command us to place him at the top and worship him alone, he knows that's where he belongs. He, he knows that that's the position that he alone holds. I've said this statement before, and I'll say it again. It is absolutely unfathomable to God that we would ever worship anything other than him. It makes absolutely no sense to him. Why would we ever put anything in that position other than him? He alone holds that position, but he alone in who he really is should hold that position in our life. Meaning, if you've ever thought the thought, oh, God will understand, and then you do something that you know you're not supposed to do, he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand. If you've ever tried to water down who he is to make you feel better about your own decisions, then we're not worshiping the real God of the universe. Look at Romans chapter 1. If you've got your Bible, turn there. We're going to stay there for just a little bit. 
Romans chapter 1 has this incredible uh, passage of Scripture through it talking about how we worship something that's not really who God is. Romans 1.18 says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. This is the truth of who God really is. It's being suppressed by our own wickedness. If that's the case, we should expect the wrath of God. We should expect God to stand up for himself and say, no, that's not who I am. He keeps going, verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. He's saying, you want to know who God really is? Just look around. Just look around. You can tell. You can see that there's got to be something bigger than this. This is the reason why when Helen Keller was told about who God was, finally able to communicate back, she says, I always knew there was a God. I just didn't know his name. Because all of us at some point in the core of who we are know that there has to be somebody who's bigger than us that's in control of all this. Listen, I've said this forever. It takes more faith to believe in a Darwinian version of evolution than it does to believe in God's creation. To believe that somehow two things collided and everything came from that. That, that the, the DNA of a human being has somehow continued to, to evolve from some goo. It takes a lot more faith to believe and when the Bible says that on the sixth day God created man and woman in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female, he created them. That, that makes sense. How can all this be put together by chance? It can't. We can look around and go, okay, there's something bigger. This is not, God's not hiding himself from us. Keep going. And here's the kicker. Verse 21, for although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. I believe too many of us claim to know God, but we're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We're worshiping something created, not the creator. I know you're thinking, well, Matt, we don't worship idols. Like, we don't have birds and, you know, images and carved things. We don't, we don't do that. But, but what if, church, what if our created thing is a version of God that's untrue to the character of who God really is. For watering down the gospel to easy believism, where you pray a prayer and, and you walk an aisle, maybe even you get baptized, then you can live however you want because you got your salvation card punched and you're good to go. Where does the Bible teach that? It doesn't. The Bible teaches a sacrificed 
life. Luke chapter 9 verse 23 says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit or lose his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, then you've got to die to every part of yourself. There's another passage of Scripture when Jesus is teaching and his mom and his brothers show up. And people kind of interrupt him and say, hey, listen, your mom... Mom and them are outside. And he said, these are my mothers and my brothers. These are my, if anybody doesn't even hate his own family to follow me, then he's not worthy of me. See, this thought of say a prayer, walk an aisle, you're good to go, is never taught in Scripture. We've watered it down. To where that's all you've got to do. Yes, there's a moment of commitment. Absolutely. That, that moment of justification, we've talked about that weeks ago, uh, that is it's so important. Like me and Shelton were talking about this this last week because he's, you know, go through camp and he's got to lead kids to, to Christ. It was this incredible thing. He even said, this is something I'm not used to. I was a missionary. I did all the planting. I didn't get to have hardly do any of the harvesting. Here I'm getting to harvest some, some, some fruit of all the work that's been put into these kids. That moment of surrender, that moment of justification, that moment of salvation is paramount of importance. But that's not it. Because I can say anything. If my actions don't back it up, does it really mean? Listen, I hate to work out. You look at me and go, no kidding, right? Because we, uh, I, I, there's nothing fun about it. I've talked to people who are like, isn't it so much fun? I'm like, no, it's not. It's stupid. I hate it, right? I don't like to do it. But if I walked around all the time going, you know what? I'll work out. And I just keep looking like I look right now. Everybody's going to go, are, do you though? Is it real? Are you just saying whatever you want to say? There's got to be action in our life that, that, that follows that that commitment. There's got to be a denying and a taking up and following Him. If we've watered down the life of a believer to a pursuit of happiness, where God just wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy, right? Then how do we reconcile our theme verse? If the world hates you, remember it hated me too. John, 13, six, or thir- John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. Jesus never promised an easy life by following him. If you don't believe me, look at all the apostles. <laughs> all but John were martyred. They all died because of what they believed. You look at the early church, the early church fathers. A lot of them were persecuted to death because of what they believed. There's no, hey, come to Jesus, everything will be easy. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Jesus taught. Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Romans 5, 3 through 5, We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. I could keep going. If, if we're worshiping God, but not a Trinitarian God, A God who only exists in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three, all at the same time. If you're worshiping a God that doesn't exist like that, then you're not worshiping God. 
Because that's the God that Bible teaches. If you're worshiping a God of love and grace, but not also the same love and grace God being a God of justice and wrath, then you're not worshiping God. We love to talk about love and grace and mercy. We rarely talk about wrath and judgment and anger of God. It's the same God. You can't worship one half of him and not the other. I'll say this other. It's not even on the list of unpopular things. If you're worshiping a version of God that contradicts what God's word says about right and wrong, about truth and lie, then you are not worshiping God. If you worship a God that says culture dictates scripture, then you're not worshiping God. If you're sitting underneath leadership that says, I know the Bible says this, but that's not right, then you're under the wrong leadership. If you worship a God that goes against the very character of God himself and how he reveals himself through his word, then you're not worshiping God. You're serving a created thing, a thing to make you feel better, maybe a, maybe a thing to put a Band-Aid on the wounds of your life, but you're not worshiping the true, accurate character of God. second angle of this same statement has to be this. If, if our first point of how salvation, forgiveness of sin, and eternal life is accomplished by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then why don't we live with the urgency to tell people about him? Why do we not live with the urgency to share our faith. We understand that Jesus is the only way to the Father. We can all say, yes, that's true. We believe that. It's unpopular in our culture, but we hold that to be true. Then why are we not telling every person that we know? Why is evangelism not the center of our life? Look at this statistic on the screen because this should just rock us. The International Mission Board, the IMB says 157,690 people every day die without Christ. 157,690 people a day die without knowing Jesus. So I did the math. Those are worldwide numbers. I'm not going to bore you with my calculations, but just know I did it because I like numbers. That means in Arkansas, 61 people a day die. Without Jesus. That translates into 22,265 people every year. Now I'm going to caveat these numbers because population saturation and population density and the access to the gospel, all those things are different. But if we just take the general number, the percentage of the world population that lives in the United States and then doing that down to the percentage of the United States population that lives in Arkansas, you get 61 people every day die in Arkansas. Not everybody that you know believes in Jesus. Not everybody that you're around on a daily basis 
have the hope of eternal life and forgiveness of sin and, and this new creation life that Jesus offers. Not everybody, and we live in the buckle of the Bible belt. I did one more number. If you're 50 years old, you take that 22,000 number every year. If you're 50 years old, that means 1.1 million people in the state of Arkansas have died since you've been alive and gone to hell. One point one million people in the course of your lifetime in our own backyards have died and gone to hell. And my question to us church is what are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? Oh, we had BBS. Youth kids just got back from camp. Little kids are going to camp. Sixty-one people every day. I don't think that we're making a difference. Let me rephrase that. I don't think we're making a big enough difference. We are making a difference. People here in our church, I love this church. Man, I love your heart. There's a lot of you who are committed to evangelism. We've talked about it. We've had deacons share with me about how they're working out in the woods. And they had a new guy come on their crew. And the first thing they asked them is, where do you go to church? And why do you, what do you believe? And all this kind of stuff. They're actively involved in asking spiritual questions. But church, are we all? Because it's not just the job of the pastor and the staff. It's the call on the life of every believer to go and make disciples, right? This is Jesus' great commission, Matthew chapter 28. When's the last time? When's the last time we had a spiritual conversation with somebody? When's the last time we initiated a invitation to church or to something that's going to happen where the gospel is going to be presented. When's the last time that you just presented the gospel? And I know, I know all the excuses. Listen, what if I mess it up? It's awkward, right? What if they ask questions that I don't know the answer to? I get it. I get all those things. But on one hand, do you honestly want to get to heaven and look at Jesus and say, hey, uh, yeah, I didn't really talk about you because I was afraid I'd mess it up. Really? We know you don't have to know every verse in the Bible. I'm not asking you to carry around your big family Bible that sits on your coffee table. And oh, I'm not asking you to do that. I'm asking you to tell your story. This is who I was. This is what God did in my life. And this is who I am now. I'm not perfect. Man, I'm trying. There's something bigger than us. We all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Who ever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We all know that. That's, that's enough. That's the best evangelical tool there is. You learned that when you were in vacation Bible school 50 years ago. We all know Romans chapter 9 or verse, chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Church, we have the tools. We are competent individuals. We can share our stories. We can introduce into the conversation 
scripture things, but we just don't. Because we don't want to make people uncomfortable. We don't have enough confidence in ourselves. We don't have to have confidence. Listen, listen, can I just say this? You're not saving anybody. <laughs> You're not. It's not our job to save. It's God's job to save. It's our job to just tell. And listen, we've got to get to a point where we're okay with failed evangelical moments. We've got to get to a point where we've got to understand that every time we present the gospel to somebody, they're not going to get saved. And you've got, you got to stop getting your feelings hurt about that. It's not your job to save them. It's your job to tell them. Because we think there should be this like, momentous, like, um, how do I say this appropriately? There should be this preacher story behind it, right? How the preachers get on stage and go, I was on a plane, and the engines failed, and I stood up to everybody and said, does everybody know who Jesus is? There's a plane full of people who grew up worshiping the devil, and they all fell down at their knees. And, no, that's not what happened. We just have normal conversation with folks. Hey, listen, this is what's going on. Do you, I, don't know, I don't know if I've ever asked you this. Do you go to church anywhere? What do, you, what do you think about God? Do you believe in who Jesus is? Not like just know about it, but do you like really believe it? What do, okay, you do. What do you believe about it? Oh, that's awesome, man. That's great. But do you know that this, do you know that, that God loved us so much that Jesus, I mean, this is the easiest conversation to have, but we just don't. This is going to lead me into my second statement, and I know, wow, I'm not on time. My second unpopular statement of the day is this. The reality is, the reason why we don't do that is because we're more concerned about our popularity and acceptance from others than we are about the lost going to hell. The reality is, we're more concerned about our popularity and our acceptance from others than we are about the lost going to hell. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Says this, it's on the screen. If anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is Paul speaking. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul's like, hey, listen, you want to talk about somebody who's got credentials, who's got something to lose? That's me. I'm that guy. Been keeping the law since I was eight days old. A Hebrew of Hebrews means that he didn't lose the traditions of his forefathers. He still spoke the original language. He still studied the law in the original language. He didn't water it down. He didn't Hellenize it. He didn't Greekify it. He kept to the, to the Old Testament faith. The tribe of Benjamin, that's David's tribe. He was a Pharisee, the strictest set of religious teachers. He administered justice. He kept the law. He was faultless. In the world that Paul, Saul, grew up in, he was to be admired. To be a Pharisee was the goal of every good Jewish boy. They knew the law. They kept the law. Whether they lived it in every angle of their life, that's, that's a whole other conversation. But the, to aspire to be that, man, to have that kind of knowledge, to have that kind of application, to have that kind of training, that's what we want to be. And then look what Paul says, verse 7. But what was to my profit I now consider loss for the sake of Christ? What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the hope of his resurrection and the fellowship of the sharing in his suffering to become like him in his death and somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. All this stuff about me means nothing compared to knowing him. Everything is a loss compared to the greatness of knowing Christ. And we know this. As a believer and a true follower of Jesus, you know that the only redeeming thing about you is Him. Like we know this. We just don't live like it. We don't initiate salvation conversation. We don't push through the awkwardness and have the, the, the kind of weird what matters most conversations with people. When's the last time that you were vulnerable enough with somebody to open up about the realities of who Jesus is and what he's done in your life and how he can change somebody else's life? Listen, because when we talk about who Jesus is and we talk about what he's done in our life, sometimes we have to be honest about some of the things that we were and the struggles that we had, and this old life habits that we've put aside to follow him. But too often, we're more concerned about what other people think about us than we are about whether or not they're going to hell or not. 61 people a day. By the time that you go to bed tonight, 61 people in Arkansas. I was thinking about all this this week, and so we know like our faith is unpopular, and we know that what we believe about God is against culture, and we know that all this stuff about grace and through faith and in Christ, and we even know that we should be leading others to Him. But it all boils down to it. It boils down to my third unpopular statement. This is the one that's going to get close to home. Our lives do not reflect our faith. We believe one thing, but we live another. We know all the right answers, but we're failing the test of life. We believe in who Jesus is, an accurate representation of God. We even believe Scripture as an authoritative, inspired, and true. But when it comes down to actually applying our faith, we don't. And the reality is the reason why we don't tell people about who Jesus is because our life doesn't reflect Jesus. How can we get up and talk about something that we say is so important, but nothing in our life actually looks like it's that important to us? Just because you give up an hour of your Sunday mornings doesn't mean that Jesus is important. Hello. It's got to be bigger than, than worship service on Sunday mornings. It's got to go deeper than, than our, our commitment to be a part of a church. When it comes down to actually applying our faith, we end up giving in to sin patterns in our life and manipulating the concept of grace. We do all the same things that lost people do. We just come to church and ask for forgiveness. We cuss and smoke and drink and gamble and flirt with affairs and watch things we shouldn't and take advantage of others and talk about others. And we use people and overlook our own sin and condemn the sin of other people. We play at faith and we play at obedience and we play at worship knowing that God deserves better. And when it boils down to it, how can we share our faith and how can we point people to Jesus when they don't see any difference between our life and the lives of people who are lost except for that hour on Sunday mornings? Church, we need a radical movement of God in our own lives. 
We need to be broken over sin. We need to be uh, begging God for forgiveness. We need to be reprioritizing and repositioning and repenting of things in our life on a, on a consistent basis. And listen, we can do it. We can, we can be the spark that ignites this area with the gospel of Jesus. We just have to live it first. We got to be examples of grace and we can be examples of mercy. And we can show the world what forgiveness looks like and what second chances and third chances and fourth chances look like. And we can love God deeply and obey Him fully and share Him boldly. We can do it. It's just a matter of applying our faith from head knowledge and heart knowledge to actual action and following Jesus. Here's my last verse. If you've got your Bible, go to Corinthians chapter 1. Again, another one of Paul's letters, church in Corinth. And he says this, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We pray this in order that you may, be, that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all the power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of the kingdom of light. For he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. Live a life worthy of the Lord. Endurance and patience and joy. We've been rescued, ushered, and redeemed and forgiven. These are all words Paul uses to describe our lives in him. Live a life that people don't have to ask, are you a Christian? They know. Live a life that points people to the hope that you have. Live a life that's unpopular, where you live out your faith that, that believes all the right things and lives out all those beliefs and live a life that points others to him it should be the natural expression of our life we believe that forgiveness and eternal life and salvation is found in Jesus alone by grace through faith in Christ we believe that your salvation is more important than our popularity. You don't like me after this conversation, it's okay. And not only do we believe, we live it. And our lives are a daily example of who Jesus is. Do we get it all right? No. Do we mess up big time? You bet. But consistently, we are expressing the reality of our beliefs. So the question that I'm going to continue to ask you over the next couple of weeks is, are you willing to be unpopular? Are you willing to, to stand for things that nobody else is standing for? Are you willing to live your life in a way that nobody else is living? Next week, we're going to talk about culture. We're going to talk about marriages. We're going to talk about parenting. We're going to talk about how do we do these things and be unpopular. And I, I say this, church, with all the sincerity in the world, none of us have this figured out. We all feel this tension and this struggle. 
and I don't say things like this from the pulpit, and I don't, and you know, I don't manipulate an invitation. I don't, I believe wholeheartedly that you don't have to come forward and pray at the altar. You can do it right where you sit. If you want me to pray with you, I do, and I love to do that. Because that's 61 people a day wrecked me. 61 people that we may walk by in the grocery store, that we may work with. Hey, listen, that may even be in our families. 61 people a day in Arkansas are dying without the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And we have this treasure. And for some reason, we just don't share it. And so maybe this morning, maybe, maybe that is enough. Maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you're 40 years old and that number's a little lower than the, the million that I shared earlier. Maybe you're over 50 and it's over that number. And you're broken over the fact that you don't talk to people about it. Maybe we should be on our knees at the altar this morning just begging God for forgiveness for not sharing the truth of who He is and asking Him for boldness as we step out and ask to be not popular, to share the message of Jesus that has been against the grain of culture since the very beginning. Maybe, maybe you need to come and just reprioritize and repent and restructure some things in your life so that your life actually reflects what you say you believe. Maybe this is your chance to do that. Whatever you need, whatever you need to do, whatever you need to pray, whatever you need to talk about, I'm here if you want to be a part of that. I'd, I'd love to be a part of it with you. I'm going to ask if you stand up with me and uh, TJ's going to come and we're going to have him an invitation. I'm going to be on the floor this morning. If you need to come pray or you need to come talk, you come. If you need to come join the church or if you need to be baptized, if you need to just let your life be a reflection of what you say you believe, then let today be the day. In this room... The decisions that we make are not unpopular decisions. We, we celebrate them because we celebrate anytime God moves in the lives of a believer. In this room, you're loved and you're supported and you're encouraged. In this room, you have people who are willing to link arms and say they're unpopular too. Don't miss a chance. Don't miss your opportunity to respond to what God's taught you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for today. We thank you for the realities of your word. and God, nobody wants to be hit with truth in the mouth, but sometimes that's what you do to get our attention, and I think that's what this series is going to end up being over and over again. And God, nobody, nobody walks away from that unscathed, myself included. And so, Father, as we commit some things, as we admit some things, God, I pray that you would hear our confession that you'd hear our cry for forgiveness and repentance and God that you would change us God that you would empower us to be unpopular that you would give us boldness to share who you are and the truth of your word and the realities of your presence with us and Father that we we believe the right things. We believe who you are and the power and the grace 
the mercy and the forgiveness and the justice and the wrath and the call in our life to just share the truth about who Jesus is. God, let us do that. God, help us be broken over the people that we know we haven't told. God, give us opportunity to tell. And God, when it fails, from our perspective, know that it doesn't fail. When it succeeds, on our perspective, it doesn't succeed because of us. It, it all hinges on you. Our responsibility is to go and tell God. Let us be obedient to that. Father, if somebody needs to come and pray this morning, if they just need to talk to somebody or if they have decisions that they need to make and they want to talk it through, God, this is their opportunity to do that. Don't let us pass this moment by. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You guys come as TJ sings.